Hi, Tim. How are you? Hey, I'm doing good. Um, let me figure out how to add this. Oh, do you have um, a presentation that you want to add? Then let me. Yeah. I'm turning in, you into a moderator. So now, if you click on these three dots that are under Leave Quietly, I'm not yeah. sure. If, yeah, there you can change the link by using pinned link. And if you press on that, okay. There you should be able to change it. Great. All right, so that should be available now. Great. Right. Thank you. We'll start in around 10 minutes, so we, we have time to have a few minutes to relax. I'm sharing it on Twitter and so on that we are starting. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Hi, Victor, Jocelyn, Arian, Martin. Thank you for coming. Hi, Frank. How are you today? Good evening. I'm fine. Looking forward for the talk. Right. It's evening already. <laughs> 
yeah, meet Tim, Tim, meet Frank. Um, yeah, thank you for coming. already uh, sneaking into the uh, into the presentation here just for everybody uh, you know if you have an iPhone and I don't know how to do that on an Android but you can uh, open the, the link on your phone and then um, send that uh, presentation to your computer via Bluetooth so, so you have the airdrop and then you can airdrop share it to your computer and I hope that there's something similar the Androids. So I'm just looking at that at my computer and um, completely looking forward. That's really good advice. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, because it's really cool to have the slides big on the computer and then interact through the Clubhouse app on the phone. That's uh, I prefer that too. Thank you, Frank. We'll start in five minutes. Um, thank you everyone for coming. <clears throat> Please raise your hand if you want to uh, ask questions um, uh, or use the chat to uh, comment or ask questions. You're welcome to do so. <laughs> That's the cool thing about Clubhouse. You can interact. So uh, yeah, feel free to come up to the stage. Thank you. I guess another way on, on Android would be, uh, or any other phone, um, to open that presentation and then copy the link and then drop the, that link via some messenger or something to, to a computer.
So we are just gathering, starting in three minutes, I guess, Katarina. Yep, starting in three minutes. Thank you for coming and thanks for hanging out with us. I hope everyone has enjoyed their week. Happy Friday, everyone. Um, hi, Denise, how are you? Happy Friday. Hi, Katarina. Hi, Tim. Hi, Frank. Happy Friday to all. Looking forward to this talk. Okay, I think we can slowly start. Um, um, yeah, it's one more minute, but um, until we start, it should be time. Um, welcome everyone to the Science Society. And of course, a special welcome to you, Tim. Um, can you hear us well? Um, and, yep, there we go. Yeah, got it. Just checking <laughs> perfect. Um, yeah, welcome everyone, and of course a special welcome to you. Thank you for coming here on Clubhouse to give a talk uh, at Science Society. We really appreciate it. And um, before we start, um, let me introduce you a little bit to the audience. And then if it's okay with you, we'll would ask you a couple of interview questions and then it would be time for your um, presentation. Great. Um, great. Yeah. Um, um, Dr. Timothy Whitehead, he's an assistant professor in chemical and biological engineering. And um, he did his um, bachelor in chemical engineering with magna cum laude at the Vanderbilt University in Nashville and his PhD in chemical engineering at the University of California in Berkeley. Um, and um, there his thesis was already about engineering proteins to build nanostructures. Um, his um, advisor was Douglas Clark. Um, 
um, and um, he won um, various um, awards uh, from the College of Engineering nominee, um, Johansson Crosby Endowed Chair um, and Young Scientist Keynote um, Speaker. Um, and he also won um, a, a global award um, from MSU as a fellow and NSF career in 2013. So, um, and uh, we really appreciate you taking time to come here and before as i said before we start we kind of think it's interesting to learn about what um led you to the path of science basically uh, was it something you were always drawn to maybe you had a great teacher that kind of um elicited some or sparked curiosity in you um yeah, what was it that brought you to science? Thank you. Yeah, so thanks. So um, I, uh, so I, I mean, that, that, that's a tough question, right? But I think um, for me, I wasn't thinking much about science. Um, as an engineering undergraduate student, I graduated and didn't really know what to do with my life. So I, so I, I was a beach lifeguard and then I worked in, uh, in New York as a, um, uh, environmental engineering consultant. And so what we did was we spent a lot of time um, building environmental remediation plans for um, kind of environmental disasters from kind of the post-World War II era. So um, Lockheed Martin, for example, would dump uh, solvents down a dry well and on, on Long Island, these kind of things that you would go and clean up. And and what I realized uh, pretty, pretty soon designing kind of some of these plants is that it's... Um, um, the technologies that you build to go and, and the plan is built around um, don't really solve uh, the problems. They solve the immediate problem of, for example, contaminated groundwater, but they don't solve the long-term problem of uh, how do we get rid of these solvents completely uh, from, from, you know, once we turn these plants off, the, the solvents will return into the groundwater. And so I wanted to go to um, get my PhD and really think about kind of those um, kind of technological solutions and that's of course very engineering focused. And then in grad school, I kind of really liked um, the idea of, of, of science and, and more kind of an open investigation. Um, and so kind of my lab right now, we're in engineering department, but we do um, very applied technology, and, um, but we do it at the boundary of science where we learn new things about um, kind of how, how proteins work or how systems uh, in, in biology work. Yeah, I think that's always interesting how the path, um, you know, how the different paths are. And yeah, most of the time it's just curiosity about something or, um, you know, a specific project or so. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting. And um, to do this research, I know you you already told us a little bit what led you to to this type of research, but was there maybe, like, was it easy to get funding for this? Um, was it maybe something people told you, you crazy? <laughs> Basically, we had a lot of speakers telling us that, that in the beginning, you know, it was a huge struggle or, you know, was that something that was really, you know, came out of the collaboration 
an advisor you had is there maybe a little bit of a backstory for for this specific project if not that's also fine we can we can skip that thank you Yeah, so um, actually there is, there's a little bit of a backstory, but it's part of the presentation. So maybe we'll uh, keep the suspense up and we'll, we'll, we'll learn about it then. Oh. In, terms of the actual, <laughs> in terms of the actual funding, we tried, um, we wrote two proposals. One did not get funded and this one um, that, uh, you know, predominantly funded this, this, this work got funded. And, and since then we've been pretty successful with funding. Um, and that's by no means, um, uh, guaranteed in this kind of line of business. So at one point in my career, I think I had 30 or 35 grants in a row or proposals in a row that were rejected. So it's nice to actually get funding for once for, for kind of the stuff you like to do. That's right? amazing. <laughs> That's amazing just too. Yeah, I'm more in the 32 range. <laughs> Usually. Yeah. Now we had, the, we had a couple of collaboration projects that got funded pretty easily, but then others are like, Okay, that's wonderful. Congratulations. Um, yeah, please go ahead. The stage is yours. And yeah, we are curious to hear the story. Thank you. Yeah, so um, so, th so thanks, everyone. I'll, tr I'll try to keep this as short as possible to leave as, as, um, as much time for questions as possible. And, and I'm going to try to go at about 20 minutes or so. Um, and what I like to start off with is just um, if you go, if you can see the slides um, and kind of go to that first slide here, which is that introduction slide. Um, I'd like to kind of lead off. I, I think, you know, a lot of times in science, it's, it's um, uh, you know, there's always a, uh, a, a masochistic streak where people want to say how, how, how much they work and really don't try to go and bring in family. And one of the things for COVID uh, in the last couple of years is it's, it's important to kind of, you know, show a personal side. So this is my son who's four, who um, the first day the COVID vaccines were open for under fives, he was he was in line and, and he uh, got his vaccine and he just uh, I, I just got off from lunch and he got his second shot today. So he's fully boosted in time for his grandparents to come next week. Um, so what I'll tell you uh, really about is um, kind of a, a new concept in biosensors. And this is a um, really a nature biotech paper that just came out last month. And um, we use uh, plant hormone receptors to go and create this biosensor platform. Um, so I'm going to go to slide two, and the slide two, like what I, what I'd like to start with is acknowledgments, um, because there's a ton of people that um, that also uh, collaborated on this research, and it's really important not to go and give them shift uh, shrift at the end. Uh, in particular, um, the PI for this uh, this funded project from DARPA uh, was was Meter Nusinov at the Danforth Center. Um, and then also at University of California, Riverside, both Sean Cutler and Ian Wilden, that you can see the pictures there, um, or um, uh, uh, also were, were um, instrumental in this research. And in fact, they could give the exact same talk um, uh, to you guys. Um, and then at, at, at my university, um, PJ Steiner and Matt Bedowitz, who were former postdocs, they now have a startup in stealth mode in San Francisco, and, and you'll hopefully be hearing about that in a couple of years. Um, they did the predominant uh, amount of research in my group. Um, and so I, I'm gonna predominantly talk about this Nature Biotech paper, but there's also a couple other smaller, um, less general interest uh, papers that, that I'll also feed into on this presentation. And then finally, um, because this is an audience that I don't know many people, um, this is a great opportunity for us. We are looking for a lab manager, so someone who's just zero or two years out of school 
and, and is looking for a gig before they do a PhD or uh, medical school. Um, so for a one or two year uh, gig, um, if you're interested in that at all, or you know anyone at all who would be interested in moving to Colorado, uh, Boulder is beautiful. There's, there's amazing mountains right outside my window. Um, just uh, contact me by email and my email is pretty easy to find. Um, we also have an opening for, for a postdoc, um, but that's less pressing than a lab manager. Okay, so I'm gonna go and um, get to the, the motivation pitch. And that's kind of the, the, the third slide, so slide number three. And, and how I like to motivate this is to think about kind of all the ways you could, um, or, or in terms of biotechnologies, anything you could do if you had a, um, a, a biosensor or genetically encoded biosensor, so something you could go and put into an organism and it could go and sense a molecule and respond uh, for nearly any possible small molecule. So no matter the small molecule you can imagine, you could go and build a biosensor for it. And, you, and, and just think about the possibilities for biotechnologies. So you can imagine, um, you know, prosaically, and this is why DARPA funds us, uh, you can imagine doing this for threat detection. You can imagine um, toxicology screening, right? You can integrate with, uh, to, to go and find, um, you know, fentanyl or, or THC in your bloodstream. You can control plant traits in the field. Um, and so uh, what I'm showing you here in this picture is you can control water use with small molecules. You can sense metabolites in real time, and there's a lot of um, uh, push, um, both in industry and basic science, to go and get sensors that can go and sense uh, metabolite fluxes and metabolite concentrations. And then kind of what I'm interested in is, um, is more on the, uh, the applied side, where you can, uh, you can imagine, and, and, and in fact, people have published um, ways to go and engineer microbial species to go and have, for example, dynamic flux of their metabolism in response to small molecules in a pathway. Or you can imagine behavioral modification of living animals or even um, engineered cell therapies like CAR T cells. Um, you can imagine spatial temporal control. So you can turn them on or off at defined portions. So all of these, um, uh, all of these biotechnologies and many more that we probably haven't thought of or invented yet uh, would be enabled. If you could go and not be limited to kind of a few chemicals, you could do anything. And so that's kind of where, um, where it's really motivating for us and me. And so the challenge, of course, and so I'm going to go to um, slide four here. The challenge is that building these biosensors, this general idea, this pie in the sky idea, it, it's hard. And it's hard because you have to make them portable to, you know, monkeys and, and microbes. You've got to make them tunable for the concentration range you want to, you want to set them. You have to make them general, um, so general purpose biosensor. And so um, the next slide um, gives you different concepts of how you make these sensors. You can make, uh, imagine making synthetic antibodies or antibody-like domains or transcription factors or GPCRs, or these are G-protein uh, coupled receptors um, that are, um, form the basis of, um, uh, of, of much of our um, sense of smell, for example, or, or other signaling in the brain, um, or even optimers are using RNA instead of proteins. And, and the challenge here is that those biosensors um, require really two things, um, and any biosensor requires those two things. The first is some kind of molecular recognition event. So you have to recognize the molecule by non-covalent, usually non-covalent binding. And that's generally easy to do. The um, field of antibody engineering, so a third of my lab does antibody engineering, and, um, and, and there have been decades of advances on how do you engineer antibodies or other antibody-like molecules to bind things. Um, and so the binding event, um, we've kind of worked out, but the real challenge is that transduction. You have to transduce that binding event to some kind of output. 
And that's really been the difficult part in generating these, these biosensors um, uh, with, with properties that we would want for you know, nearly any small molecule. And so I'm going to the next slide. And, um, and kind of where the story begins for me, the story began for my, my collaborator, Sean Cutler at um, UC Riverside about a decade ago. Uh, about a decade, uh, you know, in 2009, uh, Sean, Sean's group published um, a, the biochemistry and the structural biology of a um, hormone perception system in plants um, that senses a small molecule called abscisic acid or ABI. And this controls uh, a lot of things in plants, including water use. Um, and he's um, deservedly in the National Academy for that, that discovery. Uh, but he wanted to play around with that receptor um, about a decade ago. And, and in 2015, he published a paper in Nature where he showed that you could engineer that receptor to bind to an existing agrochemical called mandipropamid. And when you go and activate that um, that engineered receptor, um, you can go and um, imitate the ABA signaling. And what he showed is the transgenic line on the right-hand side, you have two um, plants here, a wild-type plant, a Rabidopsis, and, and a plant that has that transgenic Mandy receptor. When you um, spray the, the, um, the plants with the Mandy propamid under simulated drought conditions, the, the one with the Mandy sensor lives and the wild-type dies. And so this, is, uh, this was a kind of a first demonstration of, of what I would think of as plant synthetic biology. But what I was really excited about is I thought that this may be a general solution. Um, and of course, to Sean's credit, he probably had that same idea um, you know, several years before I did. Um, so what I did is I, um, what's nice about being an academic is you can invite people to your institution. And so I invited Sean um, to, to my institution at the time, Michigan State, and we, we had a chat and we, we really, um, liked uh, some of the ideas that we had. Um, my background kind of in protein engineering and antibody engineering and his background in this system. And we thought it'd be really nice to collaborate and, and, and develop kind of this platform, use this platform not to sense this one agrochemical, but as a general platform for biosensors. So I'll go to the next slide. And, um, and, and how these biosensors um, or, or plant hormones work in general, and so you have to know a little bit about the science about how this perception works, is they control plant traits, um, and, and it's fascinating, um, using something called chemically induced dimerization. And, and what that means is that they, um, the hormone is a small molecule, and I'm showing that in orange here. So whether it's abscisic acid or gibberellin or auxin or diosmotic acid, um, in purple is the receptor protein that binds that small molecule. And then that binding triggers a conformational change in the protein to recruit a second protein in green, which I call a binding protein for this presentation. And that dimerization of those two proteins um, that is, that is uh, dependent on that hormone is what's responsible for signaling in, in control for many plant traits. And, and how this works molecularly is um, on the right-hand side, there's a cartoon um, from Hakushima. Um, where you can take a, a, the ligand, these hormones typically are nonpolar with some polar bits. There's um, electrostatic complementarity in the bottom of the receptor protein, and it, that ligand uh, or hormone fills the pocket, triggering that conformational change or that lid to close um, around that receptor. So I'll go to the next slide, slide eight. Um, and how this kind of um, chemically induced dimerization can be exploited in biosensors is that by bringing two proteins together that aren't typically together in a cell, you can do anything like 
Uh, for example, on the right-hand side, you can control transcriptional activation. So you can fuse one part to a DNA binding domain and the other to an activation domain. And you can turn on gene expression um, uh, dependent on, on a small molecule. Um, you can complement split proteins. So you can um, engineer a protein um, to basically cleave the protein in half. And um, those two halves are normally non-functional, but when they are in close proximity, they become functional. And you can complement them by bringing them in close proximity. Or you can also do more complicated things like um, activate protease signaling pathways by bringing a protease in, in, in close proximity to its, its recognition substrate. So, um, so using a, a, just a general system of bringing two proteins together in, in, uh, as a function of that small molecule, you can control a lot of biological processes. Um, and so in slide nine, um, what we were really excited about this system, uh, when I started talking to Sean, and, and Sean, of course, uh, had, had, you know, I, I don't want to take credit for these ideas because I think Sean really was at the forefront of this. Um, but it's really exciting because um, this abscisic acid receptor system, this plant hormone receptor, had already been shown to be portable across domains of life. And so um, Crabtree at Stanford had already shown um, that this uh, system is functional mammalian cells. Uh, Sean had shown in that Nature paper that you can engineer this receptor and it's functional in plants. Um, and then some work from my lab in yeast as well as in vitro measurements um, showed that you can basically port this uh, across uh, domains of life. Um, on the next slide, the second really key advantage of this, and this is, a, this is an engineering type advantage, uh, but it's, it's important, um, so I'll, I'll mention it real quick, is that um, we um, did kind of some of the biochemistry and we can write rate mechanisms for how the system works where the hormone receptor first binds that small molecule and triggers a conformational change and then recruits a second protein. And what you can do with this system is simply by changing the ratios of one of those two proteins, you can change the effective concentration at which you sense that small molecule. And, and I'm showing you um, a model in blue line and then also experimental data in open circles and um, as a function of this extra protein. And so what you can do is you can actually tune really high affinity sensing from relatively low affinity sensors. And that's a key advantage if you really want to sense really small concentrations of, of, of molecules or turn on pathways with small molecules. And then finally, um, this is also an engineering advantage, but it's also key to why I thought this system was going to be so successful. And, and, and the key thing is that if you, um, if you remember, um, binding is easy, but transduction is hard. And the reason transduction is hard is because there's conformational changes in the protein and, and to engineer those is, is really challenging, much more challenging than molecular recognition. And what we show here is that if you make a ton of mutations at the molecular recognition side, at the binding side, it doesn't interfere with the transduction effect. And so that's really important for the generality of these sensors. And so based on these things, we really thought we could, we could um, 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 develop these sensors. And so kind of on slide 12 is the, really the, the question that motivates the, that Nature Biotech paper. And, that, and, and that's really just one <laughs> question. And the question we had was that, can these sensors be engineered to bind diverse chemical ligands with affinity and specificity? So if we take all of the decades of experience in antibody engineering to go and really crank down on the binding, um, can we actually get to sense diverse chemicals? And so um, on slide 13, I'll show you kind of the, the meat of what we did in my group. 
um, we use something called computational design. So computational protein design using a macromolecular software package called Rosetta. Um, and what we did is we identified mutations in that binding pocket. So we will make um, amino acid mutations at that binding pocket to go and change the um, uh, the uh, the uh, diversity of the ligands that will be be bound in that pocket. Um, and so we did that by computational design. Um, uh, 19 positions that we can. And then uh, the next slide, slide 14, is um, once we have those sets of mutations, um, the question is how do you make that into a set of proteins that we could test? Um, in protein engineering speak, this is called a protein library. And we built that computational design protein library um, using a couple techniques that we've developed in my, uh, my research group. Um, um, where uh, the, the meat of it is, is we call up Agilent or Twist or any um, uh, synthetic DNA provider. We can order synthetic oligonucleotides containing thousands and tens of thousands of mutations um, on um, DNA. And then we can encode that DNA um, in plasmid encoded libraries using a one-day procedure that, that um, Emily Renbeck and my group ha had invented uh, about five years ago. We then transform that library of protein variants into uh, a yeast, um, a baker's yeast, and then we screen it using a technique called yeast two hybrid screening, where we, um, um, how the, the, the crux of how that method works is that we, um, um, we can activate a, a necessary synthetic gene um, in the presence of our small molecule and um, the cells will grow if that synthetic gene is expressed and they won't grow if it's not expressed. So um, slide 15 shows kind of the results of those, those yeast two hybrid screening um, and also after affinity maturation of some of these sensors. And so I'm first showing you kind of a set of um, synthetic and natural cannabinoids that we screened and we were able to find sensors for. The blue here is um, activation of a Laxeve reporter um, and on the top, uh, on the top columns are different concentrations of the chemicals. And so we can do everything from C CBD oil uh, to THC to some kind of, you know, these synthetic cannabinoids you can get in head shops that are, you know, marketed under things like K2 or Spice. So I'll go to the next slide, so slide 16. Um, it, it's not just limited to that class of molecule. We can also do um, organophosphates. And I'm showing you here uh, a bunch of diverse organophosphates. Um, and for which we can go and identify sensors for. And again, the blue um, reckon, um, uh, shows the um, uh, sensitivity of the response for given uh, sensor compounds. These are not affinity matured sensors. Um, you can go and take, for example, I'm showing you structures like methyl or diazinon. You can go and um, take the initial sensors uh, or receptors for those compounds, and you can use directed evolution um, to go and get very, very high affinity biosensors. Um, and then um, the next slide, slide 17, just shows that the, these sensors are very um, uh, potent and specific for their intended ligand. And so pyrimophos, methyl, and diazinon differ by only a, 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 a few key um, uh, changes. You know, there's a, a, an ethyl linkage instead of an, a methyl linkage in a couple cases. And you can go, and um, I'm showing you results here where there's two sensors, the Pier 1 with the PIRI and the Pier 1 diazi, and there's no cross-specificity. So you can go, if you engineer these sensors, um, they're specific for their intended chemical ligand. 
Um, and then slide 18 just shows the portability of these sensors across uh, a number of in vitro and in vivo sensing modularities. Um, and so, for example, I, I mentioned before, you can go and do activation of gene expression. On the top right-hand corner, I'm showing you activation of a fluorescent reporter gene in response to small molecules. Uh, on the lower left-hand side, I'm showing you uh, reconstitution of split proteins um, with, um, uh, in this case, uh, luciferase split protein. So um, in the absence of the ligand, uh, it, there's, there's low luminescence and there's high luminescence when you add um, saturated amounts of your ligand. Um, the next slide, which is slide 19, is just showing that these sensors can be used directly in toxicology screens or ELISA-like assays um, in biologically relevant matrices. So um, we, there's a bit of an optimization that we did in my group. And then we went to an expert, Wenwen Zhong at UC Riverside, um, who does these kind of uh, sensing for a living. Um, and her group um, showed that these sensors work in saliva, urine, serum, and saline um, with, uh, with, with com or, uh, toxicology relevant limits of detection for the, these given compounds. Okay, so kind of in the picomolar range. Um, and then Francis Peterson, so in slide 20, he, um, Francis solved the structure um, for one of these sensors and, um, and really gave us a good insight into how these sensors are actually working. Um, in in um, blue, I'm showing the biosensor. Um, in orange is the small molecule, the synthetic cannabinoid, um, which I'll call WIN for shorthand. And then in green is the binding protein HAV1 that comes in. And if you zoom in on the structure, on the details, um, really the key linchpin is there's a bound water that makes um, uh, uh, hydrogen bonds um, with the, all three molecules, the biosensor, the small molecule itself, and the HAB1 protein. And in fact, we think that that, um, that water is key to the interaction for these ligands. And in fact, you would expect if that were the case, to see hydrogen bond acceptors for kind of all of the sensors that we've seen. So, um, you know, um, a hydrogen bond acceptor in this case would be uh, an, an oxygen on that, um, on that naphthoil. Um, here, if you remember your organic chemistry, but if you don't, it's just that red molecule um, where that orange is carbon. And so on slide 22, um, if you go and you look at the structures of these compounds that, um, that we're able to identify, you can see that that C00 is present in a large majority of the synthetic cannabinoids, and in fact, some of these organophosphates as well. And so we think that that, um, that um, key hydrogen bond acceptor on the ligand side is going to be uh, a requirement for kind of really high affinity sensing for many of these compounds. Um, and so I'll end there for that, for that paper. Um, the next slide, 23, I think is kind of uh, philosophically where I'd like to end. And so you can really go in two different directions as a scientist. One is um, to say, you know, you want a sensor in the community, I'll build you a sensor, you know, write me in on your grant, write me in on your next R01 and, and I'll do that. Um, or, you know, what you could do is you could ask, what if hundreds of labs around the world could build their own sensors for their own applications? And so what I'm much more in the latter camp of open science, and I really want to be able to democratize the sensor discovery, um, similar to the democratization of synthetic antibodies um, a generation ago. Um, and that occurred, you know, um, Marx's lab at UCSF or Dane Wichert's lab at MIT or other labs around the world. And so that's where we're at. And um, 
I think that um, I'd like to end there. Uh, that that way we can leave as much time for questions as possible. Um, but these these sensors are um, um, on uh, uh, on AdGene, uh, so they're freely available to non uh, to any academic lab worldwide or nonprofits. Um, and then all programs and algorithms that we develop um, and publish are either on GitHub or they're on the Rosetta Commons uh, for the macromolecular software that we use. And, and what I'd like to leave kind of as a take home is that um, really just to mirror what we started with, um, what biotechnologies are enabled if you could have genetically encoded biosensor for nearly any small molecule. And, and what I've described today and, and is described in that Nature Biotech paper is a, a platform technology from a plant hormone receptor for sensing small molecules. And, and we'd like to, you know, push this as far as we can, but we'd also, um, you know, we'd also like the community to go and, and have a run at these and, and develop their own sensors. So I'll, I'll end here and, you know, happy to take questions. Thank you so much for this wonderful presentation and especially, yeah, also for the ending of your presentation. I do want to make this open access, basically a platform for everyone to use. That's, um, that's remarkable. And, and thank you for that. And, um, yeah, this technology, you know, it can be used for so many different things. Um, so, uh, Let's start with like a general application for, you know, everyone uh, using it at home. Let's say you waste all your money on organic fruits <laughs> as a parent, especially, and uh, you want to test that. Do you think we will have, you know, something based on your platform like that for everyday people? Or do you want to like, or is it going to stay like, more in a lab research type of environment because um, I think that would be actually really cool. You know, you put the drop on your fruit, and then <laughs> and then you could you could see if you wasted your money or if it's actually organic or or something like yeah. that. Yeah. So what you're I mean what you're describing in some cases is like um, there's a there was a big article in Nature yesterday about things called plasmatic biosensors where. Um, they're using them right now commercially for um, detecting off uh, off taste in maple syrup in Quebec, and so I think things like that could easily be applied um, using our sensors with with other existing um, output modalities like like these kind of plas plasmatic sensors. Um, but that's you know uh, this is why we want to democratize it because we can't do everything and we're not that interested in that that specific application, but. Um, if, if people can take our sensors and go and apply those for those sensing, um, then absolutely, you could, you, you could imagine using um, uh, our, our, this kind of platform for um, things like you're describing. That's interesting. And um, so you said this would be also pliable in vivo. So let's say, would you be able or would one be able to express a protein in the brain and let's say send um be very good at sensing dopamine levels um you know other type of neurotransmitter or hormone levels in a living animal model or maybe in cell culture organoid uh, models yeah i don't want to give too much away um but one of the big things we're interested in now is is porting these to um, 
um, mammalian applications. And, and, you know, we're an engineering group, so we're really key on thinking about how you could apply that. Um, and, and the obvious, like, you know, the obvious thing is for kind of engineered cells like CAR-Ts, where um, a number of other groups have done small molecule control of CAR-T. And, and, uh, and so you can imagine applying this um, to, to, to that front very, very easily. Um, an area that we're interested in that we don't have the expertise in-house for um, is also metabolite sensing. So real-time metabolite sensing um, in living cells uh, and, and organisms as well. And I think those um, are going to require kind of uh, collaborative collaborators who can do um, that that type of science. But those are kind of the big areas we're thinking of right now. So a really big one. We had the guest speaker here who did really great discoveries on astrocytes involvement in the brain, uh, how important they are, um, and that potassium levels are quite. Um, important for regulating like upstates um, in the brain and stuff like that. But it's really hard to measure potassium um, at those low levels reliably. So if you could please go <laughs> help work with that <laughs> to do potassium sensing in the brain, that would be really amazing. Um, but um, sorry. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, so I, I mean, I think potassium is tough, right? Um, I think that's, um, so I think this is this technology is more for like you know C six or high so six carbons are higher. Um, I think for potassium you really have to think about um, you know engineering something like how calmodulin has been reengineered for calcium sensing. You'd have to do that. So it, it would be a different platform, I think. Um, but that's um, yeah, that's not something I thought too much about because I think I, I agree with you and your your former speaker how how difficult that is to actually go and, and, and measure. Okay, yeah, thank you. And uh, please, Frank, Denise, Dr. Shah, and everyone, uh, go ahead with your questions. And uh, yeah, thanks for answering mine. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. That was a wonderful, I mean, I mean, presentation. And I was just wondering to ask you a little bit of question around the application of that, because you mentioned about the uh, immunosensor, if I'm right, I'm not sure about that. But I was just wondering to ask you, in the case of the cancer therapy, especially conjugated cancer therapy and targeted therapy, uh, did you think about that part or not? Yeah, we've, um, we're, um, yeah, so the short answer, the short answer is yes. Um, and um, I'm glad to see other people going in the same direction. Um, but we're not, um, we're very early stages with, with thinking about exactly what to do kind of in that space. And um, um, what I can tell you is that um, there's two ways that you can imagine um, going about it. One is that you could, um, um, well, I'll leave it at that. I, I think it's early enough stage, and um, you know, um, this is <laughs> this is the stuff that gets published in 2026, right? Um, but yeah, yes, we have we have been thinking about that. And if you're if anyone in the room is interested in in those ideas, I'd be happy to to follow up, you know, off offline where uh, I can think a little more carefully about what I what I can say. Yeah, because because uh, of the innate 
immunity and all of those functional things that we see in the T cells and behavior of the T cells, especially about the tumor and the metastasis of the tumor. And I think that your work can be very helpful in that case. That's why I ask you. Uh, anyway, thank you so much. Great, thank you. Uh, Frank, Denise, did, did you have questions so far? I, I don't have. Thank you very much for the for this uh, amazing presentation. Uh, some of the things remind me of other fields, but right now I don't have any particular questions. Thank you. Maybe Denise, you have some. Thanks, Frank. Hi, Chen. That was a really um, fascinating presentation. When you mentioned earlier the the disposal of solvents in ground wells, that brought me back to undergrad and. So I really appreciated your, your philosophy and approach on how to, rather than be reactive, be proactive and being able to get ahead of the problem. Um, I only had one question and it's probably sort of a very basic one, but jasmonic acid, is that because it was first uh, cataloged in a jasmine plant or what, what's up with that name? Yeah, um, I gotta I gotta be really careful because my um, uh, a, a friend a friend of mine is in the National Academy for discovering this pathway, um, but I I assume it's uh, related to the plant species it was originally dis discovered from, but I'm I'm not positive on that. Um, I'll I'll also <laughs> you reminded me to send him an email to go and ask him about that later. Thank you. For sure. I really appreciate the way that you um, diagram gibberellin and auxin showing like the protein folds and all that. I don't I don't think people are used to seeing things like that. So I think it's really nice that you included that visualization in the slides. Yeah, I have to agree. That's that's one thing. I've seen these things just recently with COVID. So but the graphics definitely <laughs> just want to underscore that. So, so what's a, if it's okay to ask like general questions that maybe I can think of people, maybe in the audience um, are interested from a general background. Why, um, why plant hormone receptors? Um, like what exactly is the upside um, in using plant hormone receptors versus other receptors um, or proteins um, exactly? Yeah. So the so um, the key thing is that um, so um, thirty years ago, uh, Stuart Schreiber and, um, and and Crabtree and, and others um, basically used synthetic proteins to um, to in, in a small molecule to go and do chemically induced dimerization, and that has been kind of transformational for the field of chemical biology, um, and they have 30 years of experience kind of saying, if you take a small molecule and two proteins that don't normally come together, they come together, um, that chemically induced dimerization. And so you have kind of those decades of, of transduction mechanisms. And so the key advantage for plant hormone receptors is that they do natural chemically induced dimerization. And, and I'm sure that there's exists somewhere else in nature 
that kind of signaling in response to small molecules. But if, if there is, um, it's not as easy to apply as these plants or it's unknown to me. Um, and so this is kind of the best system where we can take advantage of those decades of chemical biologists um, going in and making new transduction mechanisms uh, for two proteins to come together non-covalently in response to a small molecule. That's for me, that's Um, sorry, you cut out because I think you got the phone call. Uh, oh, yeah, I said, um, for me, that's the, the key advantage that I see. And then is this, a v so let's say for the consumer later, is the, will this be a visual cue? Um, what's the outreach mechanism that the consumer will use? Yeah, so, um, we have several right now um, for the toxicology screening, which is most mature. It is, um, it's linked to horseradish peroxidase. So it's an absorbance measurement change. And the reason that we do that is so it's compatible with all of the kind of current toxicology screening that you do, um, which is uh, kind of plate-based ELISA type technologies. Um, for, uh, uh, for, other um, sensing, I think it's going to depend on uh, the specific application. So one thing I can talk about is we've um, uh, we're hooking this uh, system up to uh, a fungal bioluminescence pathway. Pathway, so you can go and control post translationally. So not having to make new protein, um, you can control uh, bi uh, bioluminescence. Um, for the DARPA project, where you put these sensors in plants. Um, they need to be able to go and sense these with drones or remote detection. And so the big things that we're doing are turning on uh, pig, uh, pathways for pigmentation, like anthocyanin, um, as well as, uh, so, so it'll turn the plant purple, um, as well as controlling things like temperature in the leaf or other, other measurements, non-fluorescent measurements. So you can actually uh, see by infrared, for example. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I use um, bioluminescence, like I used bioluminescence in the brain, but for <laughs> for actually optogenetics, um, which is actually also algae based. So um, that's really interesting that you used these different approaches. <clears throat> for the DAPA project, if you change the color of the leaf, that, that can that mess with the photo synthesis um, efficiency or it doesn't really matter for light absorption uh, what I can say what I can disclose um, this is not uh, this is um, this is not my research um, so I'm not a lot I'm not sure what has been disclosed and what I can disclose um, what I can disclose is that you could anticipate that it it could impact photosystem efficiency and fortunately, um, people have published ways to increase uh, um, uh, photosystem efficiency, um, uh, you know, in the, in the last three or four years. And you can imagine uh, doing something similar to go and counteract those, um, those decreases in photosystem efficiency um, by, by, you know, turning on pigmentation or, or other uh, things that can absorb photons. Well, it could also be good right if you're supposed to be an organic farmer and you have that stuff in there 
And it turns them kind of, if you use pesticides, it turns a leaf into something that they are not so efficient. That's really against, you know, against a farmer's interest. Like, you know, you have a, a double reward by having the plants grow better if you don't use because you know the plants won't turn color that would be actually yeah good. hi lisa yeah you can sorry sorry go ahead go ahead no i just wanted to say hi to lisa and if she has a question but please go ahead first <laughs> oh no i i i think that's uh, yeah i mean i think there's a lot of there's a lot of things you can think about uh with with this technology that's all i was going to say um so def definitely i can take another question yeah, I was actually curious if there were implications possibly for firefighting or intercepting the signals in a way that would be helpful for climate change, um, or if you have any ideas on that front. Um, uh, for fire, so for fire, firefighting, yeah, is that what for you're fire prevention or for like ways of interpreting or intercepting the signal pathway in a natural environment such that we could learn more about the environment we're in and better prepare for droughts or any kind of, you know, um, climate setbacks that we're facing? Yeah, so, um, so my, um, um, a big, a big push by my collaborator, Sean, uh, at UC Riverside is to go and be able to control, um, to, to make field ready uh, crops. And so, um, and so the majority of kind of our cash crops now are uh, are transgenic, and um, and one of the big things about these uh, receptors is that you could um, change them minimally uh, with current technologies, and so they would not be classified as transgenic plants. Um, but you could get them to respond to already um, approved chemicals or agrochemicals. Um, and and what he showed in that nature paper is that you can control crop traits such as water use directly in the field. And why that's really important is because um, we can see two weeks ahead of time with current technologies, weather technologies, but plants typically can't, right? And so if you could go and tell the plant two weeks ahead of time to conserve water, then you could, you could keep yields up and, 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 and um, you could, um, you know, you could control different things um, in the field in ways you can. And so Sean is really interested in that um, aspect of uh, for, for mitigating for climate change. I'm not positive how, um, for, for fire prevention, I'm not positive how useful these sensors would be, but maybe it's just because I'm not imaginative enough. Um, so I'd like to, <laughs> I'd be able to like to hear uh, any, any, any thoughts on that. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here where, where I live in Boulder. Um, we had a fire two miles um, uh, away from us that destroyed a thousand homes and we had a fire a mile in front of us. So we were sandwiched uh, in the last year on fires on both sides of us that that destroyed, you know, plenty of homes and property. And so I'd, I'd be interested in, in thinking about that, uh, that option more. Yeah, I don't know if you can change, but that would not be with the biosensors, but if you could make the maybe specific plants that you would put around um, areas that are at risk of drought, maybe change their color if they kind of have less water, like that the leaves change color, but that would be probably a different platform. Another thing, what I think would be really interesting is to have plants in cities 
that you comply with a pollution regulation, air quality regulation for basically the citizens, not just, you know, to have on your iPhone, but to have a real life indicator of pollution levels in, in city plants um, or maybe some bioreactors that would carbon capture, but at the same time change color if there's too much pollution in the air. Something like that, I think, would be beneficial. Maybe not direct climate change, but at least air quality or ozone levels. Would that be possible if ozone levels? No, but that's maybe fluctuating too much throughout the day. So, but um, yeah, maybe pollution levels. I'm I'm not sure. Is that something, Lisa? That would maybe go in that direction. Yeah, definitely. And I think too, there, the awareness of drought and preventing fires is, I mean, there, a lot of these are started by humans and maybe if they just had better signals or more clear data, they would be more cautious, <laughs> one would hope. Um, yeah. And then there's also been interesting data about crop yields being down due to slight increases in nighttime temperature. That was an unexpected uh, you know, potential contributor to food shortages and things having to do with climate change. And so I think there's, you know, probable applications there as well. Um, if you could slightly expand the temperature range or the uh, yield to compensate for an extended range and these kinds of things. Um, but it seems like, you know, yeah, making major breakthroughs. So thanks for coming on and talking about all this. <laughs> Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. I have a question, Tim, if you have a time, Mr. Sure. So my question is about, uh, we, you know that we have a nanoparticle-based biosensors. And I was just wondering about your sensor uh, have this capacity for analyzing the extracellular vesicular matrix or not, or if you want to compare, compare it with the nanoparticle, how, how you describe that. I'm not, maybe I'm not, I'm not too familiar with what you're describing. Maybe you, um, is it possible to give me a little more uh, detail? Uh, which part? About the nanoparticle-based biosensor? Yeah, yeah, the nanoparticle-based sensor. So normally they are using that, I mean, from, I'm just talking about my, my job perspective. They are using for the extracellular vesicle, and sometimes we are using that in a liquid biopsy for, I mean, uh, catching some of the vesicles from the tumor. And uh, we have this type of sensors and they are working very good in extracellular uh, matrix of the tumor and they can catch the vesicles. And I was just wondering, maybe you have some information related to that, that you can compare with your biosensor that you wanna develop in the future. Oh, I see. Yeah, we're not thinking. We're thinking more of. Um, um, we're thinking more of either um, delivering uh, small molecules um, um, intratumularly, so like just direct injection to the tumor, and then have a diffusion, and and then being able to control kind of proliferation of, for example, engineered T cells using um, that more than vesicles. I think the vesicles, uh, for me, it's. Um, it's, I think it's, I think that that's hard. <laughs> it's hard to do as an academic. Let's just say that um, just because it's, it's, 
it takes a couple of years of training to really get the procedures down for, at least in, in my understanding, um, it, 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 it's, it's hard to work with those kind of extracellular vesicles, but you know, I, you know, I, I could be wrong, but that's just an outsider's perspective, but, but there's no direct comparison with that, that technology. No. And do you think that there is a, I mean, more affinity of your biosensor for the certain organs of the body? Uh, I think we, we could sense if there were metabolites, so small molecules that were overexpressed um, relative to, um, t t you know, elsewhere, um, then, then yes. But it really is, is specific for kind of those small molecules. And I, I think, you know, the, the sweet spot are kind of things that look like drugs. Um, and so, um, you know, like things that could drug another protein or, or um, um, predominantly. Um, those are those are the type of things that this system is really well suited to to kind of sense. Yeah, thank you. So, could you detect RNAs? I, I don't think you. I mean, I think you can detect. Um, I think you would be able to detect individual nucleobases, um, but you basically have got to envelop the entire molecule in that pocket. And the pocket's not large enough to accommodate, you know, things that are much bigger than kind of one nuclear base. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah, I was thinking if that would be possible. How many? Well, you could. Well, then you could create a signal. I don't know. Yeah, that would probably not work because if you could, you know, you could have an in-cell microarray, if that would be possible. Um, you know what I mean? Like you could inject it during development and then see how how color patterns maybe would change um, during, let's say, migration of neurons to the spine or cord or something like that and see what's actually important and then know what to do to get uh, spinal neurons to actually implement in the, in the leisure spine, like in a spine that got... Um, hurt by an accident or stuff like that um that would be actually really cool but um yeah what factors would be important to get neurons let's say to implement themselves again in in a specifically brain context or or, or neural context that would be quite a breakthrough let's say you use stem cells to uh save parkinson um, patients like to recreate uh, dopaminergic um, cells again you can do that but they really don't do a good job of integrating themselves into the network so if you could study that better with centers like yours that that would be quite interesting but yeah um suja um welcome to the stage do you have a question yes very very fascinating conversation thank you tim Katarina. I actually had a question um, specifically regarding the, the computational design aspect for um, identifying the combinations um, scenarios. Um, I actually joined late, so forgive me if this was answered earlier, but did you use um, ML and AI models to do this? I know that, you know, for example, there's the Folding at Home project that also deals with um, trying to find the permutations of um, proteins, right? 
So I'm just curious more about the uh, computational side of that. Thanks. Yeah, so we did not. Um, we used a program called Rosetta. So it's a um, uh, all atom, physically realistic, uh, macromolecular software program uh, to go and identify um, um, combinations in a physically realistic force field. The um, we are applying machine learning um, to uh, identify, um, you know, what sensors, uh, what molecules we can get sensors for, and which we can't um, to improve the process. Um, but that is not <laughs> that work is not ready for prime time. Um, and so, um, but I can say that uh, the earlier work was not done with machine learning. And we are Im implementing that into kind of our pipeline. Um, Very nice. So that software suite that you mentioned, um, it just did like basic, like heavy lifting computational um, statistical analysis to find those permutations. Is that right? Uh, so what we did, it, it's, it's, um, it, you can model protein, different protein designs using that software, and um, it's it's physically realistic. So it has um, it, you know Van der Waals and directional hydrogen bonding, um, uh, solvation effect, you know the hydrophobic effect that you learn in GenCam and things like that, um, in a physically realistic manner to go and identify the combinations of those uh, protein sequences. Um, it's it there's a base package, and we had to write. Um, we had to write our code to get it to do what we want, of course. Um, but that's um, uh, that's it, it's pretty useful for these kind of um, design efforts that we use. Very cool, thanks. And I'm guessing that code was in R. It's not actually. It's in uh, it's in C plus plus, and then um, the uh, there's wrappers. There's a Python wrapper, and then there's an XML wrapper. And, and for this paper, we use an XML wrapper around the C plus plus based code. Okay, very cool. Thank you, and best of luck on your future work. Great, thanks. Yeah, does um, anyone, let me check the, oh, you already answered, um, you already answered the questions in the chat. Thank you for that. I keep having ideas of sensors, but I guess I'm like totally always asking things that are kind of um, away from from your technology platform. I'm I'm really sorry. There's because there's different things I wanted to always do, but they are just not good sensors for it. <laughs> I keep trying to ask. If you could develop them. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, you know, I think, you know, that's that's kind of why it's interesting to 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 speak to people outside of my field, right? Because it's the best ideas uh, come from pollination and cross fertilization, right? Across yeah. across here. So it's great, you know, it's great this uh, this little clubhouse that you have set up for, for talking about science. Yeah, thank you. So just another thing, a great thing would be like eye motifs and G4. Um, so when DNA kind of makes these um, little loops um, of like uh, four times G and stuff like that, that those are tiny changes that are responsible for like cancer development, but 
probably also things like neuroplasticity and stuff like that that would be also really cool. <laughs> that would be a biosensor for it anyways um there's a one more uh, person that raised their hand is that okay and then we probably have to wrap up because it's uh, an hour now so uh, um amy uh, you, uh, you have the last question if that's okay to Hi, uh, good morning, good afternoon to everyone in the room. And thank you, Tim, for a great presentation. Thank you, Katerina, for having this uh, room today. Um, I kind of came late in the room, so I don't know if this question has been answered. And I'm coming from a layman's perspective because I read your paper and all those uh what you call this abbreviation confused me. So let me ask you this question. How many uh, recept plant receptors, sen uh, sensors do you have in your list already that you are using at the moment? Yeah, so I can, I can disclose. So that original paper um, gave uh, 21 sensors and we have nearly an order of magnitude more sensors at this stage. Um, and what we're really trying to understand is um, how far can we push this technology? Um, and um, so, you know, so this won't be the last salvo or the last paper you ever read on this. Um, but with the acronyms, you know, it is it is what it is, yeah. right? Welcome to biology, right? I know, right? I was like, okay, I know I, I studied biology, but I, I was like, okay, I need to ask him this question from a, a layman's perspective. But anyways, uh, you know, you know how, question. you know, we got confused on the acronyms uh, finishing up the paper because like the editors, you know, they copy edit it and they, they add these acronyms. We got confused on all these acronyms. Like I can't imagine, like, you know, I'm going to be a cranky old man at this stage, but like it used to be so much easier to read papers. Now you kind of have to open a dictionary uh, side by side with all these papers when you read them. Right. Yeah, I, I was going to Google those, but I said, no, I'll just watch the replay and, and do a little bit more research. I say <laughs> research, but anyway, I love that you have this open source at the very end of your page. Uh, it says that whoever, you know, can approach you guys and, and talk about it. So are these plant sensors uh, done in combination? at times or you do you use one at a time oh um i um the, the short answer is that right now they're done one at a time but i would expect to see something published soon that shows you can do multiple at a time okay wonderful right. and when you say small molecule can you give me like five examples of such? Yeah, um, well, uh, melatonin, uh, um, let's say uh, tryptophan, uh, let's say um, uh, THC, um, let's say a, um, a, an or organic phosphate that, um, you know, like a nerve gas. Um, and then um, uh, you could, uh, imagine sucrose, right? So those are all examples of small molecules that you can imagine sensing with this kind of platform. Okay, are these sensors only applicable for plants? Or I know you, somebody mentioned about cancer. You can use these sensors for the human body. Yes. Wow. You can put them. You can put them in bacteria, and the bacteria can sense the small molecule. 
You can put them in plants and they sense, you can put them in mammalian cells and they can sense the small molecule. Um, so it's really across the domains of life. We can put them in, um, you know, in fungi and, and they can sense the small molecule. Um, so so if, you can, if you can transform the organism, you can get these sensors in and then the organisms can go and, and sense that small molecule and respond in ways that you can engineer. So uh, let me ask you this question uh, on a layman's term. So whenever you use these sensors, uh, you don't need any computer to do any result fact finding. It just automatically do what it's supposed to do. Yeah, well, I mean, if they did what they were supposed to do, you know, my all my PhD students would graduate in two years, you know, uh, there's some engineering involved. But in terms of the actual um, the system itself, it's pretty um, um, it's it's the the components themselves um, work as they um, without any additional engineering. Um, but but hooking them up to the transduction and, and organisms and 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 doing the um, the really tight expression that you need in, in certain organisms is is tough, and um, and 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 that takes a little bit of work. But the sensors themselves they work out of the box, and you can put you can put them in you know um, any. I can't imagine someone who would want to do this, but I'm sure you could put them in an elephant, you know, and it would work as intended. So uh, what you're trying to say is uh, what I'm asking, I guess. Can you quantify your results when this uh, occurs? Yes. You're able to gather data on it. Yes. Okay. That's basically wanted wanted to know if it actually works after you implement it. Okay. Thank you so much. I appreciate this room. Thank you, Amy, so much. And this. Thank you so much for asking those questions. They were wonderful. And which reminded me now of a paper we discussed here I don't know Dennis was it like two months ago three months ago it was a paper based on um, um, meeting in Switzerland that is hold every two years about um, general um, security issues around the world um, and there were pharma pharma companies also present they should try to, with AI, with AI platforms they are currently using, they don't even need supercomputers or anything with public available data, uh, how fast they could create with those AIs harmful components to humans, more harmful than the most toxic one we have right now available. and. Uh, I think three or six hours into doing that uh, for security, you know, um, discussion issues, um, they were able with public available data to create 40,000 compounds uh, that were more toxic than the most toxic, like to human. So, and this was very worrisome and they made a paper about it, we discussed it. Uh, so, your platform did you ever hear about it and w were you like approached maybe by that and and your platform is probably the closest to be able to address this security issues um, I, I would assume maybe 
Um, you know, like yeah, I think that it's I, I I think it's it's hard. So I'll give like the the real world example I'll give is is fentanyl, right? And and what's on the streets is not kind of if you Google the molecule fentanyl, it's not what was originally on the streets. Um, they've been it's been changed tremendously. Uh, the molecules and, and there's a diversity of molecules now to evade uh, regulatory authorities, right? Um, so fluorinated groups have been added or or or, or other groups um, to to go and change the chemical structure to evade detection, uh, not necessarily to make it more um, uh, more potent, uh, but but often to to evade detection. Those are very very difficult. Um, it's a it's it's very very difficult to. Um, to adapt to that cat and mouse game. And I think that that's um, something that, you know, my collaborators at Riverside are very interested in doing. Um, and, uh, but in, in this biosensor platform in many ways is, is well adapted to what you're describing. Um, but it's something that I'm not particularly that interested in doing. I, I'd, rather spend, <laughs> I'd rather spend my life um, um, doing other things, let's say that. Um, so Katarina, I, I have a hard stop in, in a couple minutes. And so um, maybe we'll st stop there. Um, yep. Is yeah, that okay? Sure. Of course. Um, yeah, that's just reminded me of that and, you know, how fast it would be, you know, your platform to adapt to some new, you know, terror attack maybe <laughs> or something. But yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming and for taking the time. This was really, really interesting. And thank you for answering all of our layman's questions and um and for your patience <laughs> and yeah thank you everyone for coming and asking great questions thank you amy for your questions they were really great and uh, i hope you come back one day um to give us updates when you're allowed to give us updates and uh yeah thank you this was an amazing room we really appreciate it yeah, well, thanks. Thanks, everyone, for your time. And I really appreciate the questions. And then I just want to I just want to reiterate, if you know anyone um, uh, who's looking for a lab manager position, um, you know, someone just a couple years, zero to two years out of their undergraduate degree, just let me know um, and, and you know, send me send me an email. I'd be happy to we're, we're, we're eagerly trying to find the right candidate for us. And thanks, everyone, so much for your time. I'm going to I'm going to leave now. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye, Katarina yeah. and, and Frank. Yeah, we shared it Bye, on Twitter too, through our Twitter account that you are looking for lab members. So hopefully something Thanks. comes. Okay. Bye. Enjoy the weekend. Okay. Bye, everyone. Thank you for coming. And um, yeah, we'll have another room later today at 9 p.m. EST. It's a little bit different type of a room. Uh, we kind of decided to uh, branch out a little bit about uh, since we are a high like a high percentage of our team is led by women and we kind of also want to address issues that women have living in this world so we have a new we we want to maybe try to have a new series talking about um listening to stories of um women of different sensitive topics um, abuse, abortion, and so on, and just um, having women here as guest speakers, just like our other uh, science uh, guest speakers, and listening to their stories, and maybe uh, help drive awareness and change, like we do, we try to do it with science, and um, 
we'll have our first room tonight with Ebony. She wrote a book about her story, um, how um, of her story of being abused and how she managed to get out of that situation. And she also uh, founded um, um, organization that she now helps women with um, getting out of these situations, um, pay for lawyers and so on. So um, yeah, um, if you're interested in just being here and learning from real stories from people, um, come to our room tonight at 9 p.m. EST. Um, and the titles, when you see titles like this, Dr. Um, someone and then the title that's very similar to their paper it will still be always a real researcher sharing their research and then we from now on we'll have um, as we had before when we are talking about the book author in the title will be book author discussion and then maybe something a title about their book or this time it's sensitive stories uh, talking with Ebony Smith, uh, just that you're aware um, that uh, we are branching out a little bit into, we try, you know, topics that are close to our heart and we want to support. Um, so yeah, thank you for coming and thanks for being part of this. And we wish you all a wonderful Friday and happy weekend. Thank you everyone.